For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We got to pull the lens back out a little bit here for a few minutes and 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 look at the big picture of the book of Hebrews. These the audience here is under heavy persecution. We have to remember um, they are Jewish Christians who believe that Jesus is the Messiah and they are being ostracized much in the same way that Jesus and his disciples were treated. Uh, they are now being treated this way by their fellow countrymen, by their fellow Jewish people, sometimes by their own family members. That uh, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ caused a major rift in first century Jerusalem where families were being divided over this issue of was Jesus the Messiah or was he a false prophet? These people are getting kicked out of their synagogues. They're getting ostracized. Some of them are having their property seized and sold. And they're doing what is most natural. They're saying, why, God? I'm, why is this happening to me? I'm following you. Uh, can you. Can you help out? Can you protect your followers? Am I being judged because I'm doing the wrong thing? That's one thing that often when we suffer, we say, you know, God, are you, are you telling me that I need to change something? Are you unhappy, Lord? Uh, they're wrestling with all of that. And so the author of the book of Hebrews has sat down to reassure them that, no, in fact, they can be very confident that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the superior revelation, the picture, the ultimate picture of who God is, completely consistent with the Old Testament, the prophets, and the writings, and Moses, and Abraham, that he's the fulfillment of all those things. Now, this isn't a new program, a whole new religion, but this is the culmination of what God had promised Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, and what many think God had promised Adam and Eve back in Genesis chapter 3, that this is the big picture fulfillment of God's plan, and that to be a follower of Abraham, to be a follower of Moses, is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And that God has not forsaken them, and the, the, the hardship that they're going through is the result of living in a fallen world, of standing up for what we believe is right, and of God allowing things to happen in our lives that will help us deepen our faith and our spiritual maturity. And that as he's going through these arguments, he's getting into chapter 11, chapter 12, where where we've been the last few weeks, and he's getting super practical then about what does it look like to live in faith? What does it look like to take these principles and, and to prioritize the things that God says that matter how do, how do we do that? And how does that impact the way that we view the world and ourselves? And he's pleading with them. He says, no, you've got it right. Don't give up. This is true. This is real. You'll be rewarded. But yes, it is hard. But don't quit because it's hard. Last week we read in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, therefore, Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance 
and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that's been set before us. So we talked last week all about that, that this was, you know, a hard thing, that life is not a sprint, it's a marathon, and the Christian life even more so, that we're going to navigate our way through this world and that it's not going to be easy, it's going to be rigorous. We live in a fallen world that has set itself against our Creator. The current of this world sweeps us up and moves us away from God and encourages us to be selfish, which happens to be the very thing that we love to do, is to be full of self. And he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. We talked about this from the standpoint of as we experience this suffering and as we say, okay, I want to live my life in a way that matters to God, in a way that impacts eternity. I want to take God up on this offer that the spiritual life is the richest life. A life with Him is is the most fulfilled life. And as I go through that, he says, you know, we have to look at Christ and follow His example. He's the prototype. He's... he's, uh, the architect that we can look at to see what it looks like to live that life. And he's saying that Jesus' suffering, understanding his suffering, will help put in perspective our suffering. And that when we suffer, we should think about and we should look at him and that somehow that will be an encouragement to us. Now, going back and thinking about the original audience here, remember, the heart of the question that really the author is trying to answer for them is, if God is good and loving, why is all this terrible stuff happening to us? Why doesn't he stop it? And he says, well, consider Jesus' suffering. And it's like, I don't know how helpful that is. I don't have a roof over my head. Why should I be comforted because Jesus suffered? I don't understand. And he gets more specific. He says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Think about the fact that Jesus suffered in so many ways. And he did. I mean, if you look at it, he suffered betrayal from close friends. Jesus, Judas betrayed him with a kiss, turned him over for 30 pieces of silver. The disciples scattered. Peter denied ever knowing him in his time of need. When he was surrounded by enemies, they went and hid. He was beaten. He was mocked. A thorn of crowns thrust upon his head, being punched and said, behold, the king of the Jews. He was humiliated. He was spit upon forced to drag his cross through the public square, found guilty of a crime that he did not commit in an unjust criminal justice system where everyone knew he was innocent and a guilty man was allowed to go free in his place, stripped naked, hung on a cross, 
and killed. And the author says, so when you suffer, be comforted by that. It's easy to miss what's, what's happening here. The question, though, is an important one. It's one that we all face. It's, it's really one of the big ones. Why does God let good people suffer? And whether we've suffered ourselves or we've seen loved ones suffer, we say, how can a good God allow X? Fill in whatever you want. How can he allow that to happen? You can just look out into the world and you can say, how can he allow children to starve? How can he allow so much pain and so much injustice and so much suffering? How can God be just and how can he be good? Many people have denied the faith and decided I cannot believe in the God of the Bible for this reason right here. Because I look out into the world and I see so much ugliness. What is wrong with a being that would allow this to happen that had the power to stop it? And the Bible's answer to that is interesting. It says that God allows free will. That God didn't create the world to be this way. He actually created it in harmony where there was no pain, there was no death, there was no suffering, there was no evil. But he did something that allowed all of that to happen, which was he made us. And he made us in his image so that we represent him, we reflect him. There's, there's something about us that says something about him. But he gave us choice, meaning that we weren't pre-programmed, we weren't incapable of doing evil. We were born good. But as moral agents, we could choose rebellion and evil. And we did. And we brought all that pain and all that suffering into the world. And not only that, but as a result of throwing off God's leadership and saying, we're going to go our own way without you, God also removed his protection from creation. And so creation itself, we're told, is fallen and broken and twisted and not how God made it to be. We're in a bad situation and things are broken. And God said, you can choose your own moral path, but I also must let you know that I am righteous and that if you do evil, the penalty for evil is death. And I will judge you. And we ignored all of that and went our own way. And the human race is under a death sentence because of that. We deserve judgment because we have twisted what God made good. But the other interesting aspect of that is so, you know, you might say, well, okay, God, so you create a system and you say that you're loving and you say that you're good and you make everything good, but you give us choice but you must have known, God, that everything would go out of control and that great injustices would occur. And who are you to make that decision for us? And we sometimes imagine that God kind of stands outside of that system, that he created a broken, twisted system and like, like a, an elementary student on a playground is burning us with his magnifying glass like we're ants just to see what would happen. 
But that's not the picture that the Bible paints at all. The actual picture that the Bible paints is that God allows this injustice and then he comes and dwells among us and allows himself to be subject to that injustice. He doesn't leave us on, his, on, his, on our own, but he weighs into the middle of it the all-powerful creator God of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega, who speaks things into existence, subjected himself to our whims because he decided to come and die and take the penalty for our sins. So maybe while it's a valid question, God, why do you allow all this evil to happen and why do you allow bad things to happen to good people? We should also ask the question, God, why do you allow these things to happen to yourself? You have the power to stop. You, you had to, you had never had to suffer. You never had to experience any of those things. You're completely sovereign. Why would you go through that for us? And the answer from Scripture is so that the power of sin could be defeated. That death sentence that we are all under, God decided to come to become a human being himself and to take the penalty the death sentence that we deserve upon himself so that we would have the opportunity to be reconciled to him. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God had decreed that the penalty for evil is death, so it must be fulfilled. But rather than allow us all to die and be destroyed, God came and died in our place, even though we are wicked, so that we could be reconciled to Him. He did this to demonstrate the depths of His character and love. That this is who He is. He is not a being that gives up on His children. He created us and yes, we have free will. And yes, we have, we've done something horrible. But he doesn't give up. He weighs into the middle of it. And whether you accept what I'm saying or not, you know, as you wrestle with that issue of how could God be good and allow so much evil and pain and suffering, I'm going to be totally honest with you. I don't have all the answers to that. I'm not somebody who's like, I'm totally satisfied with that question. Because there is a lot of pain and suffering that I see. I live in tension on that. And I think, you know, it's okay to be questioning, God, is this really the way that it had to be? But what we can't question, what we shouldn't question, is that whatever it is that God did and whatever his reasons were, he included himself in that vulnerability, in that position, and in fact, took more upon himself, more suffering, more shame, more grief than any of us because he died for all of us. He came into the middle of our mess so that we could be reconciled to him. Now, some people like to look at that and they're like, oh, God is even weirder than we thought. 
He's into cosmic child abuse. Why does God have to, God's son, have to die and suffer because of our sins? What kind of tyrannical, evil God are we talking about who looks at us and says, you're bad, and then punches his son in the face and decides, oh, that's better now. I could kill my son instead of you. And somehow that makes all of us right. And they look at the story of the gospel that I just explained to you, and they see tyranny in the Father God. But the problem is, is that they fail to understand that the Father and the Son are one and the same. This is not God doing it to someone else. This is God allowing it to happen to Himself, which is made crystal clear at the beginning of our study in Hebrews chapter 1. So this is not God putting His wrath on someone else so that we can be saved. It's God taking the wrath that we deserve upon Himself because He loves us and He wants a relationship with us. Jesus did this willingly as an act of love. John 10, 17-18 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. The Father and the Son are one and the same. They are united. And they together decided to do what needed to be done to reconcile, to rescue the human race from its own wickedness. So we go back again, and we start with the initial question. Why would the fact that Jesus had to suffer comfort me? Think about your original audience. They're suffering as a follower of Jesus. And the author's like, well, as you suffer, remember that Jesus suffered. And it's like, where's the comfort in that? Why wouldn't you just be like, well, it's, it, it, it sucks that Jesus had to suffer, and it sucks that I'm suffering. I don't understand why like, I should feel better because Jesus suffered so much. If anything, that makes me feel worse, right? He's answering a question that would have been very much at the forefront of their minds, which is he's saying, listen, your suffering isn't a result of God's displeasure with you. You see, we tend to view God as that tyrant, right? And we tend to view our bad circumstances as though God were hurting us or judging us or doing something bad because he was displeased with us. There's something in our nature, right? Because we're kind of like that kid on the playground that burns the ants with the, with the magnifying glass. In fact, some of us were exactly that. <laughs> and so we imagine that God is like us. He's an overblown version of us. So if I'm in pain and I'm suffering and I'm not doing well, it's because God is mad. And the author's point is that God allowed all of this happen to Jesus Christ. And He loved and is Jesus Christ. We can suffer greatly in this life and that is not a measure of God's pleasure or displeasure for us. And so we can cross off this notion that if I'm suffering, it's because God's mad. Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
No Christian suffers because God is mad. There is no wrath. Wrath, judgment, is what Jesus took upon himself. And there is no wrath for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's very important that we understand that. I think he's also pointing them to Christ's example that they could take comfort from Christ's suffering because, one, it means, like we said, that God's not mad at us, he's not judging us, and two, we can look at how Christ's suffering really accomplished something amazing. It accomplished something eternal. He died and took the judgment that we deserve upon himself. He suffered for others, and God used that in a cosmically eternal way that did so much good. And that when we suffer, we should wonder and think, maybe there's some way that God could use my suffering for good as well. God can take suffering and use it for good and that our suffering can result in deeper intimacy with God. That there are opportunities here in the midst of difficult circumstances to bring about great victory and to see God glorified. And one of the reasons I think we get confused about this is I think we often confuse the concepts of justice and discipline. We don't really think through the difference between these two very different but very important things. Justice is the, administra- the administering of deserved punishment or reward. God said the wages of sin is death. There's going to be judgment of death upon those who sin. And so if God is just, he has to follow that through. And he did. He just decided to take that penalty of death upon himself. The sentence of sin is death and Jesus died. That's justice. That's not discipline. There wasn't, it wasn't as though Jesus was bad and God wanted to teach him some things. It was that God is just. And so justice is the punishment fits the crime. Justice is you do something bad, you know what the consequence is, that consequence needs to be seen through. You don't adjust the consequences with justice. You meet out justice in the way that it's deserved. Discipline, however, is totally different. Discipline is teaching and guiding toward maturity. That there are things that we might do or that God might do or that God might allow that we won't like, that won't be easy, but there's a purpose behind it to bring us into greater maturity, greater faith, greater dependence on Him, greater joy in our lives. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, wrote about this, and he said, we should not be too taken aback when unexpected and upsetting and discouraging things happen to us now. What do they mean? Why, simply that God and His wisdom means to make something of us which we have not attained yet and is dealing with us accordingly. Perhaps he means to strengthen us in patience, good humor, compassion, humility, or meekness. 
by giving us some extra practice in exercising these graces under especially difficult conditions. Perhaps he has new lessons in self-denial and self-distrust to teach us. Perhaps he wishes to break us of complacency or unreality or undetected forms of pride and conceit. Perhaps his purpose is to draw us closer to himself in conscious communion with him. For it is often the case that fellowship with God is most vivid and sweet and Christian joy is greatest when the cross is heaviest. Or perhaps God is preparing us for forms of service which at present we have no inkling. This is discipline, God's discipline. And this is the author's answer for helping the Hebrew audience understand what they're going through. He says in chapter 12, verse 5 and 6, and you have forgotten, and, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son who he receives. And we have a terrible tragedy in translation, because again, this idea of being scourged, right? How are we supposed to be encouraged by the idea that God whips every son? Just thinking about that, that's that's painting that picture of God as the sadist, again, that God somehow loves hurting us, and that that's, that's his idea of love. But that word scourge here, that, that word is, is discipline. And in the Greek, it, it, it has a, a much broader sense of this is something, you know, this is something that's done to teach. In Greek culture, corporal punishment was a big deal. Children got whipped when they misbehaved. And so this, this scourging is a word that isn't well translated. We should have, he disciplines every son whom he receives. Meaning that God, if he disciplines you, if he brings about hard circumstances in your life for the goal of honing you into more of who it is that you can be, that means that you are a son or a daughter who is loved. And that's the perspective that he's bringing to them, is that the Lord allows things to happen in our lives because he loves us. If you have hidden sin that you're trying to hide and you are entrapped within yourself, God in his mercy may find some way to expose that so that you can find healing and that you can grow. If you're facing bad consequences because of bad decisions that you've made, God will often allow that to come about and bring that together because he wants you to grow. Sometimes in his mercy, he'll protect us, but sometimes in his mercy, he won't because he wants to see us grow into more than who we are. And he will allow us to go through hardships because he wants to hone our character And the author's point to the audience is that these things, these hardships that you're crying out, God, why are you letting this happen to me? Are you mad at me, God? He says, no, these are the marks of sonship. This is happening exactly because God loves you and is leading you into deeper maturity, deeper dependence on him, and greater spiritual depth. 
Don't miss the opportunity to understand what God is allowing in your life. But it's also true that not all pain is discipline. There are bad things that happen as a result of others' choices. We shouldn't look at every bad circumstance and everything that happens and say, you know, this is God moving in some way to to hone me or change me. What we could say is God can use every circumstance to teach us and grow us. But that doesn't mean that God fashions every hard circumstance to teach us and grow us. We still live in a fallen world. We're still subject to cancer, to the bad choices of others, to natural disasters and all of those things. That's not a commentary. God's protection or lack of protection of us is not a commentary on how He feels about us. He loves us, but He will allow difficult things to happen. The other thing we need to realize is that while not all pain is discipline, not all discipline is pain. That God's guidance in your life will have many different facets to it. And He will grow you and allow you to grow. Yes, pain is a great teacher. Yes, hardship seems to get at some of the areas where we are most stuck in our pride. But God can break us with kindness and blessing just as easily as he can with pain. Hardship is a very potent tool, but so is forgiveness. When I was 23 years old, I was dating Jess, who I'm now married to, who was 20, and she was about one year out of just outright hellacious rebellion against her parents and God and what, what do you have? She would rebel, was rebelling from it. And she'd had about a year where she was really growing with God and it was during that year that we started to date and uh, you know, she was just sort of notoriously feisty. And I fell in love with her and I saw that she loved God and we were doing ministry together and I thought, you know, maybe my marriage is going to be really hard because I'm, I'm, I'm going to marry this really strong-willed, feisty person. And maybe that's good because what God wants is, is for me to have hardship. <laughs> and, and things will, you know, will work out for the best. And I literally had people coming to me, friends, saying, dude, you're picking a tough one here. And I was like, I know, but, you know, I, I love her, and, and maybe marriage is going to be hard, but it, it'll also be good. And, you know, we got married, and I was waiting for the hammer to fall. I was just like, okay, you know, we're, we're young. I'm 23. She's 20. We're both strong-willed. We're both pretty defiant. Uh, the hammer's going to fall. And my marriage became, and still is, one of the greatest blessings in my life. Not that we haven't had our hardships and that we haven't fought and that, you know, we're not strong-willed people, but I feel like God gave me something incredible. I was looking for a hammer, and God gave me one of the most wonderful blessings of my entire life through my marriage. 
You know, that verse, you know, you being evil want good things for your children. How much more who God who is not evil wants good things for you? I was expecting God to hand me a snake. And he broke me with his blessing. And I keep doing it, right? It says something about my nature and my character. I keep expecting like, okay, so, you know, I'm 21 years into my marriage now and I'm still kind of waiting for the hammer to fall. My kids are 18 and 16 and they appear to be doing well and healthy and love the Lord. And I'm always like, oh, I, you know, they're going to pull one over on me. My kids are going to rebel. You know, my family's going to die in a car crash. There's just something in me that just can't accept that I could be that blessed and that well taken care of and have that many good things, the hammer is going to fall. And God, I think, is just like, who do you think that I am? (laughs) Yes, those things could happen to me, and they could happen to anyone, but I look at God and I I just say, you're just making this sweet so you can take it away, aren't you? And it shows me that there's something really broken and my view of who God is. And I think it's important when we talk about discipline to realize that God can kill us with kindness and, and prefers, actually, to bring blessing. And He can guide us both through hardship and through good things in our lives. It's the picture of a wise parent with a child, a good parent who really loves and cares about his children, is going to look at them and say, I'm going to deny you some things. I am not going to say yes to everything. And discipline may be different in different situations for different people. And we say, well, that's not fair. If you're going to, if you're going to punish one kid for this, then you've got to punish the other kid for this. We're not punishing. It's not justice. We're doing everything that we can to guide our children into the best possible life for them. And that's how God works with us. And our author is explaining that to his audience. He says in verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Don't look at what's happening to you and think that God is cruel. Look at what's happening to you and see the opportunity to grow and to draw near to God. He says in 8 and 9, but if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children. You're not sons. If you are not loved by God enough for him to bring about honing, changing difficulty in your life, then you are not sons at all. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? And so think about the argument that he's making here to the audience. They're saying to God, why would you allow this pain and this suffering? When will you make it stop? Protect me from this God. And the author says, God is allowing it because it will result in the greater good for you, for your character, and his purposes. It's the only reason a good God would allow such a thing to happen. Is that the end game here is better and worth it, both for you and for him. 
He goes on in 12, 11 through 13, it says, all discipline for the moment seems to not be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Think back to your childhood. I know that a lot of us you know, didn't have perfect parents. None of us had perfect parents. But you know, hopefully there's something you can think about from your childhood where your parents denied you something, where they said no, and you hated it at the time, but you can look back at it now and say, thank God that they had the wisdom to not give me what I wanted. When you're being told no, it hurts. But then later, when you grow beyond it, you begin to understand why your parents did some of the things that they did, and you become grateful for those things. And the author is saying, as you, the audience, are going through these hardships, you will come through on the other side and be grateful that God allowed this in your life. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Help one another, encourage one another, and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The point here is that God's discipline is always, always motivated by his love, not cruelty, not disinterest, but love. Consider the healthy boundaries that were set for you as children. Where would we be if our parents never told us no? I'd say we'd be monsters, but we're already monsters. We would just be more horrible monsters, right? Uh, you know, there'd be no limits to our selfishness. Thank God, whether it was a parent or a teacher, a sibling, there were people in our lives that were willing to teach us that the world didn't revolve around us and that we don't always get what we want because there are things that we want that are actually bad for us. And if somebody loves us from time to time, they'll tell us no. That there's people to set boundaries. And yet we look at God, and we're grown-ups now, and we understand that about the way that we raise our children, and we understand that about maybe about the way that our parents raised us. But we think, okay, now I'm mature and I'm grown. God, give me what I want. We're like a child in the grocery store, sitting in the cart, throwing a tantrum because we want, to, we want this and we want that. And God's like, you have to pick one. We're not getting four kinds of sugar cereal. <laughs> right? That's what we are as adults in life when we're looking at all the things that we want that God hasn't given us. God is essentially still making us clean our room, brush our teeth, and go outside to play. And we are still throwing ourselves on the floor kicking and screaming and saying, that's not fair, you don't love me. And that's the dynamic that we are still in with him. And the author is making the point here, you know, you, you can peek behind the curtain and see the reality of what's happening here and get, and get on God's program for you and cooperate with him. And that is what we should do. The truth is, is there's no avoiding suffering in this life. 
We live in a fallen world. We are going to suffer. Christian, non-Christian, we are going to suffer because life is hard, the world is fallen, and there is pain for everyone. There is injustice for everyone. But God can use your suffering to grow you and help others if you'll allow it. If you'll draw near to Him in the midst of it. The only alternative, really, is letting your suffering cause you to become bitter, self-centered, and alone, which is what many people choose. They just get stuck and frustrated, and they get tired of being burned, and they decide they're going to eliminate all sources of potential pain in their lives, and that is people. You cannot eliminate all sources, potential sources of pain in your life without blocking out everyone. And that's what many of us do. And then we get mad that we're alone. And we suffer that way. I had an experience a couple of weeks ago. I'm still kind of processing it. But I, I was thinking about it during this teaching because, you know, it's about circumstances and difficulties and you know, as you guys know, I was in Cambodia uh, and had a great trip, just incredible time. Uh, but uh, the travel is, is a little rough, especially when you're 6'3 and coach. You know, you're like, your knees are up against the seat in front of you. You can't straighten your legs, and it's like 24 hours in the air with a couple of breaks in between where you get to sit in a chair at an at a airport for layovers. And we got out there and came back, and everything seemed like it was okay. But I have a, a genetic propensity for blood clotting. I've had a couple blood clots in my life, um, and none of them have been serious. But I came back from sitting on the plane, and even though I'd been careful and I'd tried to get up and walk around, and I knew about, you know, this is something that could happen, I got a massive clot in my leg, which then broke free and went into my lungs, and I had two pulmonary embolisms last week. At 1 o'clock in the morning on Monday, I woke up and I was like, Jess, I think I'm having a pulmonary embolism. Can we go to the hospital? And she was like, yeah, we went. We went to check in and, you know, went past security. And I'm 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 like, I'm dizzy and shortness of breath. And I'm like, (sighs) and they're like, why are you here? And I'm like, I'm having a pulmonary embolism. And they're like, "Uh uh-huh, insurance? You know, and I'm like, no, for real. And they're like, you know, and they got me back there and they hooked me up, you know, check blood pressure and pulse and all that stuff. And uh, my blood pressure, I think, was 80 over 50. Cold sweats, low blood pressure. You know, this is what I'd read about. This was the thing that kills like 25% of the people that this happens to. And they did an EKG. They did a CAT scan. They put me on blood thinners. And in about an hour, I felt fine. And I've felt fine ever since. And so it's real easy for me to be like, that was nothing. I had a bad hour. uh, And now get on with life. And, you know, I say that and it's like, well, that, you know, is is it that I'm being tough? Is it that I'm, you know, trying to be super spiritual? And I think the answer is, is that um, I haven't processed it the way that God wanted me to. I think it's sort of like this lingering outstanding issue that's in my inbox, you know, and God's sort of like, hey, 
Are we going to look at this? Because I think there is an opportunity there. There is something there that God wants me to see. And my attitude has been, well, I didn't die and I didn't suffer that much. Yeah, I spent two days in the ICU. But I really, honestly, I think what's at the heart of it is, is I still think I'm pretty much invincible. And I'm 43 years old and my body's starting to hint that that's not the case. But in my pride and in my independence and in my fierce just desire to go, go, go and do what I want to do and not be frustrated by circumstances, I think God is trying to break in and say, listen, um, there are limits and you're subject to them the way that everybody else is. And, you know, your inability to process this, you know, I feel like I've been fairly insensitive to my wife and to my kids and what they went through seeing that and going through that because I'm just like, it's over. It's in the past. What are we talking about? And I'm missing, I guess as I studied through this this week, what I, what I really began to see was that, you know, I'm sitting here talking about how God works through our circumstances and I have nothing to say really about this circumstance. The, the closest thing to a near-death experience that I've had in my life and I have nothing to say about it except, you know, it's it's gone, and it didn't, it, you know, I didn't die, I'm here, and I feel good. And I think the reality is, is that uh, there's a pride and there's an independence. I, it didn't drive me to deeper intimacy with God, and it didn't cause me to question Him. It didn't, I didn't have any of that. I was just like, I'm in the hospital, now I'm out, now it's time to get back to the things that I love to do. And I think what God wants me to do is, is to slow down and, and look at how precious life is, what an amazing life I have, what an amazing family I have, what an amazing fellowship that we have, and to, to slow down a little bit and enjoy what God has provided for us. But I haven't done that yet. And um, I, just, I guess I'm just sharing it because I think it's the kind of thing that the author is talking about right here. Don't miss these opportunities to really understand and go to God in the midst of different types of suffering. Jesus said in Luke 9, and he was saying to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And Paul, I think, summarizes this very well in Romans 5, 3 through 5. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character. Proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And I think what's being said here is, that we shouldn't miss those opportunities. It's okay to wonder and it's okay to doubt. And when we're suffering or the people we love are suffering, it's okay to be conflicted. But don't miss the opportunity to look and see and understand the bigger picture of how God can use those difficulties in our lives. That's what I've got from Hebrews 12. Yeah, we're grateful, God, that, uh, for the hope that you give us that uh, our suffering can have meaning and that uh, 
there is opportunity to grow and to see things within ourselves that you that you want to change or that you want to strengthen or that you want you want us to let go of and i just ask that you'll you'll help us to not plateau wherever we are um, just to never stop wanting and, and and choosing to grow because the more of you that we have the the more complete the more full and the more joyous our life can be and the more of a blessing we can be to others and we thank you god for the discipline that you brought into our lives and we ask god that we'll be able to trust in you and be faithful with the discipline yet to come amen this study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.